Let's be honest. Life's hard sometimes. We get discouraged, struggle in our faith, and it's easy to feel alone. Despite how you might feel sometimes, know that God's got your back. And so do we. Vision's prayer line team are ready to pray for whatever you're going through. Text your prayer request to 0401 132 888 and we will be praying for you. Or click prayerline at vision.org.au. That's 0401 132 888 or vision.org.au. It's another way Vision is helping you look to God daily. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. To restructure means to reconsider your strategy, to redeploy your resources. Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, we'll hear a new message from Pastor Jeff about the importance of restructuring our lives in order to follow the true Christ. It's called Moving Toward the Light. And Pastor Jeff is reading from Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is the Lord of your life. And Jesus right out of the chute says, you better be willing to make some changes and restructure. That's what it means to follow the biblical Christ. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. And while you're doing that, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, I want to ask you if you've ever heard of a company called IBM, small little company. Have you ever heard of them? Now, would you not describe them as a pretty successful company? But if you know their history, you'll know that back in 1992, they hit rock bottom. They began to falter and fail miserably. As a matter of fact, Up until then, it was a shock to them too because they had dominated the market or the field. It might have been true that other high-risk ventures might have outperformed IBM for maybe a season, maybe a month or two, or maybe half a year. But year in and year out, your big money, smart money was always on Big Blue. They were the definition of high-chip stock. But between February 1991 and December of 1992, their value dropped 63% which was unheard of in that economy. Today's economy, it's not that rare. But then it was a shocker, especially to IBM, because again, it was new territory. They were used to dominating the field. Here's how one industry analyst described IBM. They have taken their eyes off the ball. And the response for all of 1993 for IBM, every question they were asked, they would respond with the same word, one word, and the word was this, restructure, restructure. They became committed to a leaner staff. They let 50,000 employees go within a two-year period, and they spent millions of dollars, literally, on trying to find a new CEO. And every time they were asked why, they repeated the same word over and over, restructure. That was their catchword for every question they were asked. Now, turn in your bulletin, because if we're going to do this together, you're going to have to get this definition right away. And I'm going to encourage you, to keep some notes in your bulletin, okay? The first thing I want to do is define what they meant by restructure because in the business world, it's important to know that when somebody uses the word restructure, here's what they mean. You can fill in the blanks in your bulletin. To restructure means to reconsider your strategy, to redeploy your resources. 
in order to maximize your likelihood of fulfilling your vision. Let me say it again. To restructure means to reconsider your strategy, to redeploy your resources in order to maximize your likelihood of fulfilling your vision. And in a great way, restructuring at its core is an act of humility because you're admitting that you need to change, that if you don't change, you're going to continue to make the same mistakes and get the same results, which some people call a definition of insanity. Now, keeping that restructuring in mind, now I want to take you over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Before I read it, remember that God had been silent for 400 years. The people are waiting on a voice, a prophet, someone to remind them or give them some indication that God had not forgotten them, that he still loves them. And Jesus sends John the Baptist ahead, and this is what we read in verse 1, chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, folks, listen, this is a pivotal announcement. Even before Jesus begins his public ministry, he sends John the Baptist and he keeps saying the same thing over and over. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after that, John is arrested. Remember, he's beheaded. Jesus then goes into the desert to be tempted and he begins his public ministry. And right out of the chute, he starts proclaiming the same thing John the Baptist said. Matthew chapter four, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let me just say it again in case you've missed it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then over in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70 into the uh, villages, sends them out in pairs, tells them to keep proclaiming this primary message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the question is, what did the people of Jesus hear when Jesus was saying that? I know what you understand, but what did they hear? What were they perceiving when Jesus continually used these words? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, most of you, when you hear the word repent, you think of something uh, that has to do with being remorseful, that you're very, very sad over something that you've done in the past or the present. Uh, the best definition concerning the way Americans understand repentance is a uh, Christian youth camp. Christian youth camp, did you, did you go when you were younger? Because they are masters at producing repentance. I mean, after seven days of sleep deprivation and a diet that includes only sugars and fats, and relationships of incandescent intensity and standing around a campfire holding hands and singing a hundred verses of Kumbaya, everybody's going to repent. Matter of fact, you're going to make up stuff to repent so you don't feel left out of place. Now, I'm not saying that that repentance wasn't sincere, but it didn't always have lasting effects. Now, listen, the Greek word repentance is this beautiful word, metanaeo. And for years, We've been taught that it's a change of mind, a change of direction, a 180 degree turn to be going in one direction in life and turn the opposite way. And all of that is true, but there's one definition of, uh, of the word, biblical word for repentance that often gets left out. It's this whole idea of restructure. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard says, to repent is to reconsider your strategy for living, to reconsider the way you live life to restructure. Now let me give the definition again, just so we make no mistakes. To restructure means to reconsider your strategy, to redeploy your resources in order to maximize your likelihood of fulfilling your vision. Folks, 
I just love this about Jesus. Now, we're in this series called American Jesus where we are comparing and contrasting the way most Americans perceive Jesus with the biblical way that describes Jesus. So we've got some mannequins up here. You look at the, uh, most Americans look at Jesus as the butler Jesus. He's like the waiter. He stands over in the corner. And when you need something, you call and he comes running over. You give him what you want. And then you tell him to go back in the corner and let you get on with your life until you need something else. When you get in trouble again, you call him back over. Other peoples in America see Jesus as the surfboard dude. He's kind of like your buddy Jesus, just chilling with the Messiah, hanging out with Christ. That's how you see Jesus. He's your buddy. There's no authority there. We're just all buddy-buddy. But the biblical Jesus, he comes along and right out of the chute, he says this. You're going to follow me? You're going to be serious about being in my kingdom? You've got to be willing to restructure right from the get-go. The American Jesus says, live and let live. And it's all filled with grace. And we all go the same road. We all go different roads, rather, same direction, end up the same place. But the biblical Jesus says, no, it's more than about saviorship. It's about lordship. And that is not optional. Jesus is the Lord of your life, and Jesus right out of the chute says, you better be willing to make some changes and restructure. That's what it means to follow the biblical Christ. Now, that brings up two questions, though, because when a company is going to restructure, they restructure because they want to achieve the ultimate vision, the ultimate goal. But So we got to ask, what's the goal? And folks, listen now. This is one of the most important questions any person, non-Christian or Christian, can ask. But it's especially true with the believer. Now think about it. I love to tell this story. I've told it numerous times and I'll probably tell it five, six times a year because one of my favorite illustrations, it's about a bicycle race that they have in India. And this bicycle race only lasts for 20 meters. And the, the, the goal of the race is to finish last, not first. So the whistle blows and you try to balance yourself on the bicycle. Now, if your feet touch the ground to try to catch your balance, you lose. So you try to balance yourself as long as you can and without making forward progress and the last one to cross the line is the winner. Now you think about it for a moment. Some Belgian bicyclist comes over to India. He's on vacation. He comes by and sees this Indian bicycle race. He says, what do these Indians know about racing bicycles? He pulls his nice bike out of the back of his trunk, goes over, gets to the starting line. The whistle goes, boom, he finishes first only to discover he finished last. The point is, don't you think it's pretty important to know what the goal is? That's why my favorite philosopher, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, I have learned to define life backwards. First determine the goal and then live life accordingly. So we got to know what is the goal of my life. This is Today with Jeff Vines. The message is moving toward the light. Pastor Jeff is speaking about living for Christ and having that as our ultimate goal. What is the goal? What am I trying to achieve? If we're going to restructure, we got to know what the vision is. Second, what is the strategy? Because Jesus comes along and says, you're going to have to restructure your life to achieve the goal because achieving the goal is not going to happen incidentally. It's going to take great effort. It's going to happen intentionally by you making changes in your life. All right, so let's answer those two questions first. Number one, what is the goal of my life? I said that last week. It's very clear. This is not something that's hazy. Romans chapter 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And I said last week that this is gonna be painful. That your entire life, the power of the spirit in you is gonna make you like Christ. Now listen. This is something we miss all the time. God's goal for humanity is about much more than just saving a group of people and getting them into heaven. 
That's part of it. But it goes far beyond that. He wants to make you and me like Christ. Yes, when we get to heaven, we'll be made perfect. But you know what God's dream is? That when you and I get to heaven, there won't be a whole lot of work left to be done. That you'll be that close to holiness and he'll just do the rest of it. So that you and I can be a light. That we can be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That is the goal of our life and it's going to be painful. That's why I'm not sure I like this bumper sticker that I see on cars all the time. I I like it. Part of me likes it. Another part of me, I'm worried. It says, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. Now there's a part of that I like, a part of it I don't because I'm worried that we're saying, hey, we're just all forgiven, but there's no effort toward killing sin in your life. Now think about it. Imagine an AA bumper sticker, Alcoholics Anonymous, that said this on the back. 12-steppers are not sober, just forgiven. See, the thing of AA is there's this expectation that you would actually improve and live above your alcoholism, that you would stop drinking. In Christianity, there's an an expectation as well by the Messiah. Jesus says, you're going to follow me. I want you to know there's an expectation that you would start killing sin in your life, that you would have a great passion to be like Christ, and as a result, you would effectively, constantly, relentlessly pursue holiness and purity and do whatever it takes to rid yourself with the power of the Holy Spirit as your partner of the sin in your life. I read something this past week by Francis Chan. I like to read some of his stuff. He's a clever guy. And he read, he, I want you to listen to what he said. He said, the truth about most of us, honestly, we passionately love Jesus, but we don't want to be like him. We admire his humility But we don't really want to be that humble. People might take advantage of us. We think it's beautiful that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, but that's not the direction in which my life is headed. And you are thankful, he says, that he was spat upon and abused, but you'd never let that happen to you. And you praise him that he was loving enough to suffer during his whole time on earth for you, but you're going to do everything in your power to make sure you enjoy your time down here. And he ends the article by saying, we have abandoned the most simple and obvious truth of what it means to follow the biblical Jesus, that we actually follow his pattern for life. Now, here's the problem. Most Christians I meet, here's the center. The center is representing total perfect, holiness, purity. This is the target of Christ's likeness. But most of my friends I meet, here's how they spend their lives. Rather than pursuing the middle, they want to ask the question, how far away from the middle can I live and still be called a Christian? So some of the ethical debates that I hear from young Christians, well, no, I think I can do this. I think this is acceptable. It's incredible how we're able to rationalize our own activity. Now, here's what I want to ask you. How does that harmonize with what Paul says in Philippians 3? Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on. I'm passionate. I'm diligent. I am relentlessly pursuing the middle, holiness, purity, and killing sin in my life. Now, it's not like we Americans don't know how to be passionate. I mean, Dodger fans are passionate, are they not? They're radical, crazy people. And Laker fans, come on, how many of you were watching the Laker? How many of you, how many of you guys out there are going to tell me you didn't get excited about the Laker game? That you weren't jumping up and down and running around the house and saying, pass the ball, Kobe. Come on. How many of you? You get passionate. You're fired up. So it's not like we can't be passionate. Here's what Jesus says. And I want you to know this. The American Jesus says, you're all okay. The biblical Jesus says, the bottom line is, when you signed on the bottom line, 
You agreed that you were going to be in heavy pursuit of Christ-likeness, of holiness, of purity. That you were going to have this indescribable, relentless passion to be about the business of killing sin in your life. How many of you can honestly say that is the primary passion and there's a stretching and a straining in your life to become holy and pure? I see when we think about sin, we think about addiction to pornography, adultery, stealing and killing. But what about the sin of narcissism, which is the sin Jesus talked most about? The lies I tell to make myself look better. The things I say about other people to build myself up. The apathy I hold toward others who are in great need not only in the world, but in my community. The drivenness in my life to accomplish what I want to accomplish so that I begin to neglect the things that are really important, my relationship with God, my devotional time, my wife, my children. What about those things? What about the sins that we commit hourly? Hourly. Jealousy, envy, gluttony, laziness. Pride, anger, all the rest. You say, but Jeff, we're saved by grace. Yes, and that's what I've been saying since I got here. But wait a minute. Shouldn't we all be making some progress? Shouldn't we be more holy five years from now than we are today? Shouldn't you be more pure in your relationship with Christ today than you were five years ago? If you asked that question to Jesus, he would say, yes, that's what you signed on for. When you chose to follow me, that's what you said you would do. I had a young man come into my office when I was a teaching pastor at Savannah Christian, and I could tell he was looking for a loophole. He came in and he had a sin that he was committing in his life that he didn't want to change, but he still wanted me to assure him he was saved. And he kept asking me this question, Jeff, does God ever tire of forgiving me for the same sin? I said, excuse me? He says, is there a forgiveness limit? Can you cross the line? And then God says, no, you know, you've prayed for forgiveness 10,000 times for that sin. You're at your limit. That's it. Now, here's my response to him. First of all, Jesus told Peter seven times 70. Forgiveness. God is not afraid. He doesn't run out of forgiveness. And he's not afraid that some bad boy down here on earth is going to put one over on heaven. Yes, he forgives you every time. But second, we're supposed to be living here. We're supposed to be struggling to get here, not asking how far away can I live and still be called a Christian. Besides, these questions are the wrong questions. They are. The right question is this. The wrong question is not, or the wrong question is, how much sin am I allowed and still be a Christian? That's a wrong question. The right one is this. Am I moving toward the darkness or am I moving toward the light? Am I growing toward God or am I moving away from him? That's the real question for every one of you. When you sign up to be a follower of Jesus, you agree that you are constantly, relentlessly, passionately going to be moving toward God, moving toward the light, improving in your spiritual walk. And by the way, this is why the Bible says, be careful about judging where a person is on the spiritual growth ladder. You understand what I mean by that? You're in no position to judge the spiritual growth of somebody else. The reason is, is because you don't know the genetic baggage or historical baggage they bring with them into their relationship with God. So if you say, well, I'm way up here and they're way down there and you think you're better. See, that's not the point. The point is, is wherever you are on the spiritual growth ladder, are you moving upwards or are you moving back? John Piper says it this way. If you don't be about the business of killing sin, then sin will be killing you. There's no middle ground. It's like Frank Lubbock who preached to a tribe in Africa who had a long history of violence. And the chief accepted Christ on the spot. He then turned to the missionary in gratitude and said, 
who do you want me to kill for you? <laughs> do you? Do you see what I'm saying? See, for him, that's where he began. Through a process of restructuring, he's going to have to learn that murder and being a Christian don't go together. It's a learning process. But if you think that you're superior to the chief, just because you are less likely to kill somebody, you're sadly deluded. The question with God is, wherever you are on the spiritual growth ladder, are you moving up or are you moving down? Are you making progress? You say, okay, Jeff, I got it, I got it. Then what's next? Well, here's the next thing. If you're serious about passionately pursuing holiness and purity in your life and killing sin, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've got to restructure in order that you might achieve the goal. It is not going to happen, incidentally. It happens intentionally. Jesus says, in America, Jesus, live and let live. The biblical Jesus says, repent. You take sin so seriously that you are willing to restructure your life so that you are about the business of killing it. All right, Jeff, I heard you. How do I do it? How do I restructure? I'm glad you asked. Thank you for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. We'll have to leave it there for now, but we'll hear how to restructure our lives in order to live for Christ next time. Restructuring means that you're willing to do things differently than you have in the past so that you won't keep failing, taking two steps forward and three steps back when it comes to killing the sin in your life, so that you won't keep fighting the same habit, the same thing and making no progress. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.